Welcome to Midweek Liberty. Tonight we're going to be discussing the Pioneers movement in Russia, we're going to be examining John chapter 13, and we're also going to be talking a bit about Viktor Frankl's take on suffering from his book Man's Search for Meaning. So let's enjoy tonight's program. Alright, well the first thing we're going to talk about is the Pioneers movement in Russia. Now when we think about our world around us, especially here in the U.S., there's stuff like the Boy Scouts, and the Girl Scouts, there are a lot of things that people are involved in as, as kids, and whether or not you were involved with it, just about everybody is familiar with it and knows what these programs are. Well, if you can imagine what it would be like if the state ran those things, and the people running these had an incentive to teach the children from an early age to prioritize their loyalty to the state, and it was something where the kids had no choice if they could be a part of it or not, but it was voluntary by the state. Well, if you put all of that together, what you get is the Pioneers Movement, which was in Russia. It was a program which would, and the, if you look at it in its, its peak back in the 1950s, or excuse me, in the Soviet Union's peak, you'll find that it was compulsory. All children had to be a part of this. There was no option. And again, if you go back to that point in time, 99% of, of youths were involved in this program. And it was something where, from an early age, they would take kids into it, starting somewhere around the, the age of eight. And it would be just like, what we have in, in America with the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but they would be brought together with the idea of teaching them to love their state first and foremost and the ideology of the state. So it's a very interesting thing. And we've got a couple of images that you can see here. And, and as you look at these, you can see something reminiscent of, and I don't know of any way of substantiating this, but if you just look at the, the stuff and the illustrations that are there, and even if you look at the demographics of the kids there, it looks like it is really trying to reflect what is going on in the Western world as we look to this, those the in the imagery that's there and the, the sort of cost, uh, I wouldn't say costumes, but the the uniforms that the, the children have on it, it really reflects a lot of that. But at the same time, you can still see permeating through it the, the very ideas of, of communism and socialism, which were permeating through the, the Soviet Union and its, and its subsidiaries there at the time. So it's just really interesting to look at these these posters that we can see here. Here in this first picture, we've got Stalin and Lenin. And as you look at these different posters, there really are some interesting things which came out of this. They would sing hymns. They would sing lyrics and, and things which reflected not towards God by any stretch of the imagination, but instead it reflected the state. They had songs and, and limericks and all the things that children would normally be exposed to, but they're all centered around the state and teaching children to love the state. Now, there was some really neat stuff that were done with this. Uh, they, they actually had a, a railroad, which was the children's railway, where children actually ran the railroad. And they had adults who supervised this, and this was something where the, the kids actually ran, ran a railway. Now, the Pioneers still exist today. It's no longer a compulsory thing. It's now voluntary. And, of course, as you can imagine, when it's, it's voluntary, there's a lot less people involved in it, and it's a lot healthier structure now. It's no longer something where the state has developed a tool for indoctrination and I don't want to so much say brainwashing but they've effectively used this as a propaganda machine is what it originally was but now that's a much more modernized and a much healthier version of it today but for our purposes of this conversation we're going to be looking at the pioneers movement at the peak of the Soviet Union and what it was originally intended for and the tool that it was within that context for really shaping the youth of that day 
So if we can just take a few moments and imagine the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, if we can reflect on what that was like to be in that as, as a youth in our culture or someone we know that was in there, or even the Cub Scouts for that matter. You know, it's something where people go, they, they go and they learn. They learn to, to create identities for themselves. They learn how to, to really figure out some skills for life that are a little bit more than one may learn at home. It's just learning how to interact with the world around you. But the primary purpose that they had for the Pioneers Movement can be traced back to sort of Lenin's mentality. And we've got a quote from, from Lenin that I would like for us to, to listen to. This is from his Task of Youth Leagues. We need that generation of young people who began to reach political maturity in the midst of a disciplined and desperate struggle against the bourgeoisie. In this struggle, that generation is training genuine communists. It must subordinate to this struggle and link up with it in each step in its studies, education, and training. All right, so as we listen to this, you can hear, again, they if you go back to the things which are going on in the Soviet Union, they were trying to pit the different classes against one another. It kind of starts off with this this hatred and resentment for the distribution of things in society. And it was really centered around the distribution of, of production and and the means of production and how there was the bourgeoisie who had the, the means of production and therefore they had all the wealth and power. And then the, the proletariat, the working class, they were people who were just pitted against it. And it's a really, really terrible thing because, again, it sort of resents the the... Pareto distribution in a sense, but, but even more so than that, it, it pit people against one another. And it's something where, where people learn their identities in groups instead of as individuals. And there's always evil that comes in when people are, are reduced to group identities instead of being treated as individuals. But also as we look at this, there's that language of we're, we're developing young people who will be genuine communists. They're people who are through and through believing communism without any any critical thinking involved in it. They're just people who are just absolutely on board with communism um, to the point that they would subordinate to the struggle, as the, the quote says, and, and everything from education, you know, the studies that people have, learning the life skills to just be a human being, all of it was centered around communism. So one may look at this and say, well, aside from the communist over-indoctrination, over what was the main issue with this? Instead of growing up in, fa in a family environment, where it was central to their part of life, children were taught in the Pioneers program to prioritize communism above everything else in life. This was where children were introduced to socialism, and it was this communal structure where youth developed their ability to express themselves. Their identity was developed in the communist structure, and to declare oneself a loyal communist was a high virtue. So there were a lot of arguments made that the Pioneer Program back in, you go back to the peak of, the, of the, the communist Russia, if you go back to the peak of the Soviet Union, people were saying, well, it's a great program. Sure, it's indoctrinating kids, and it's not giving people a well-rounded worldview. There's definitely no diversity of thought there. But they were saying, well, it, it reduced juvenile delinquency. And, you know, that's a, an interesting argument that I've heard people make in favor of the Pioneers Program being a state-run boys and, and girls sort of club and you know you have to ask yourself do you really want to give up freedom and give over the parenting and the the raising of children to the government did it reduce juvenile delinquency and the answer is yes it did because it also reduced freedom it mitigated responsibility people had over their lives so sure you can take care of some delinquency when you take away freedom and responsibility but we really have to ask ourselves do we want freedom or do we want to have the government be the ones who provide us with the resources that we, we need in life? 
because if we give up our personal responsibility and personal agency in things, and if you go back to the Pioneers program, it's really the idea of raising children. Children, again, instead of the family structure being what was so central in life, it was their identity as a communist that was taught to them at a very young age is where their, their core identity was found. If you could say, you know, I'm a proud, genuine, through and through communist, that identity card was worth more than your own family structure. And that's, that's a, a dangerous path to go on when people identify with some abstract external group more than they identify with even the people who are, who are just kin to them, the people who should be raising them. And without the family, the healthy family structure, you know, just, it really bothers me. You know, we, we look at our world around us and if we look in our own culture, we see where there's sort of a, a diminishing of, of healthy family life where people are, are taught the skills from an early age where their, their parents seek to socialize them well and people get all of the, the life skills and social skills needed to be successful in life. If you can just imagine all of those skills being carried out by people who have a, a vast incentive to take the mind of a, of a youth and, and, and pull this whole vast ideology of communism and socialism and plant it in there and say, this is what is the most important thing in life. You know, the highest virtue is to be a through and through communist. It's a very, very dangerous thing. So the opposite of that, of course, is freedom, where we take the responsibility to, to deal with the youth in the world around us, where we use our personal agency to, to care for our families and the people around us. And in the kingdom of God, we have a responsibility to be individually transformed. Somebody may look at this and say, well, you know, the kingdom of God is a place of a, of a collective body. And, you know, that's totally true. But the kingdom of God is not a place of communism or socialism where external group identities are worth more than the individual. Sure, there's a body, but we think in three dimensions. We don't reduce our, our behavior down to, to crayon-level thinking and say that, you know, there's a group identity, so our, our individual status is completely worthless. There is no evidence in the New Testament of Jesus coming and say, well, come, and I'm going to give you a one-size-fits-all transformation. This is, it's ludicrous to think that, that there is a group identity that, that circumvents the role of the individual altogether. But instead, Christ always comes to individuals and say, I'm going to, to give you a, a tailored transformation, and you as an individual are going to have responsibility to go out in the world and teach and be a disciple. You're not going to be somebody who you get transformed and now you're part of a group and the group does something. No, there was an individual responsibility to be a disciple in the kingdom of God. That meant you had to teach and you had to, to interact with the world in a productive way. Sure, there's a collective body, but if we look at the New Testament, we study it well, there's this idea that your free will is the medium of, of receiving the transformation in, in the kingdom of God. So I want us to just look at the Pioneers program and, and just fathom what it's like if we hand over the raising of children to the government. And the government, of course, doing what governments do, they're going to indoctrinate kids with what they, at that time and place, believe is, is absolute. And of course, as we know, governments are horribly unreliable. And we're going to move on and leave it there. Next, we are going to recap the terminology of primary expressions and mediums. All right, so we're on a couple of new platforms now. 
And I think it's important for people who listen to our, our programs at Kingdom of the Logos. Of course, this is the Midweek Liberty program, but people who listen to this, I want to really just go back and rearticulate some of the language that we use in terminology. One of the best tools that I think that we have for critical thinking is differentiating between the primary expression of something and the medium. If we take something like the statue of David, it's a, a wonderfully articulate example of the human form. You can see everything about the human body in detail. It's clearly defined in the, again, the articulation and execution of that, that statue is just phenomenal. But when we look at that, you can say, what is that? And of course, you look at it and say, oh, that, that's a man. You might start with something basic. You wouldn't come up to that and say, oh, here's just another rock. Because it takes place on the medium of, of a rock, but the primary expression of it is, is, is a person. It's, it's the conveying of, of David as he goes to, to fight Goliath. And as we are critical thinkers, I want us to always be looking at the world around us and saying there's a primary expression of something, and then there's the medium by which it manifests. Just like a, a potter may go and use the medium of clay to produce something that is the primary expression of, let's say, a mug or a pot or a vase. Sure, there is the medium of clay, but what that thing really is is found in its primary expression. It may be a mug. It may be a plate. It could be just about anything. It could be a brick. And there is a difference between something's medium and the primary expression of it. And this is really something important in the church because one of the things that's always bothered me in my, my earlier years in ministries is I remember there were people who were, were clergy, there were Nazarene clergy who would go around and say, we must go out and touch the untouchables. And they'd pull up some scripture in the New Testament and they'd be like, look, Christ went and he touched the untouchables. This woman was, was bleeding and Christ went and touched her. Or there's a, a blind man and Christ goes, and of course they always use some sort of gross imagery and they say, you know, he spits in the mud and he wipes it in their eyes. And, and he touched the untouchables, and he did this. And as people say this, I just take a moment and sit back and say, wait a second, wait a second. There is something wrong. There's a fracture in the logic when you emphasize what Christ is doing is touching the untouchables. It really, this is one of those phrases that really puts me over the, the edge a little bit because I'm like, no, you're missing it. Touching the untouchables is a medium. That is not the primary expression of what Christ is doing. There are some people who, who in the, the Jolton area, there are people all around, around us who are pretty gross. They have some, some diseases. People have infections. They go and do a lot of hospital visits. People have sores all over them. Life in the kingdom of God is not so easy as the pastor goes over and touches the nasty wound that somebody has, and suddenly you know, we, have, we have actualized as, as healthy people in the kingdom of God. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. That is the medium of Christ's ministry. The primary expression of it is transformation. Whenever you see Christ dealing with these people, there's always transformation. The blind man, transformed. The woman at the well, transformed. The woman about to be stoned, transformed. Somebody who, who can't walk and he goes in and says, you know, get up, take your mat and go walk. If we go back to Greek, the parousia always gets saying, get up, go and have a life. He's transforming somebody to a really, from a, from a really terrible place that's just, you know, misery to a place that's much better. And, and that is the primary expression of Christ's ministry is this good and healthy transformation out of chaos into something that is order. And this is what it bothers me so much when we, we miss it and people overemphasize a medium, which of course mediums are important. You want to have good mediums for the stuff in life to manifest, but don't ever confuse it with the primary expression. If you go out and say that you, you've touched the untouchables, therefore you're Christ-like, you know, I hate to say this, but sorry, unless there's orderly transformation involved, unless the, the logos is there, um, no, you're not necessarily being Christ-like, but in fact, you're, you're being a little bit superficial. And I hate to bring that up, but it's something which really bothers me. 
So that's that. That's some important language that we have. And as we get into our, our study here in a minute in John 13, we're going to be asking questions like, what is the primary expression of this text? Of course, it's taking place on a medium. What are all these things and, and how do they relate together? So we'll get to that here in a moment. Tonight, our study will be in John 13, where Jesus is washing feet. John 13, 3-5 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, the time is for us to use these critical thinking tools. You know, we don't want to just be shallow people and look at, at this text and say, oh, he's washing feet. That must mean that the medium of, of you know, Christ's ministry is, is what we do. Um, the question I want us to have, we look at this text, we say, what is the primary expression? What is the medium? You know, this is a big way to, to learn in the world around us. It's a huge tool to be able to do this. It will sharpen your mind if you can look at the world around you and say, what is the primary expression of this action and what is the medium of it? If you can help separate those two, you will learn so much. So if we look at this text, we can ask ourselves, what is the medium? What is the primary expression? It's fairly obvious that the medium that this story is taking place on is washing feet. But is ministry so simple that we just go out and wash people's feet and suddenly transformation happens, the world turns into something you know, totally different. And the answer to that is, of course not. This is, this is the medium. There's something bigger happening here. But the question for us is, what is it? How do we find that? So in order for us to, to ask this question, what is the primary expression of Jesus's feet washing? Let's go a little bit further into the text and see what we can find. So we're going to start tonight. We're going to read in John 13, and we're going to go from 16 to about verse 20. So I'm just going to pick, or excuse me, 6 to about verse 20. So I'm just going to pick back up in verse 6, where it says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What am I doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand? Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? All right, so just taking a break in this text for a second, do we understand why he has done this? All right, if we look at this text and we say, well, the medium is feet washing, the medium is, is a sort of cleaning process, what is the primary expression? You know, it's still a little bit cryptic as we read this, but we know it has something to do with the relationship Jesus has with the disciples because he says, you know, if you want to become someone who is fully enveloped and is fully actualizing in the kingdom of God, I need to do this. This is necessary. And you can hear Peter's response to this. He, he goes from saying, you, you can't wash me. And then he says, oh, well, don't, don't just wash my feet. Now that you've said that, that this is something that is important 
don't just wash my feet, but wash my, my whole body. So let's, let's go a little bit further, picking up in verse 13 and see what, what we find. John 13, 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. All right, so right here is where we see the primary expression starting to bleed through. Jesus is dealing, he's got the disciples right now. We can't forget that. Jesus is dealing with the disciples. And if we understand what the word disciple means, this is not just any random student. A disciple is somebody who is then going to have the responsibility to go out and teach. And Jesus is saying, I wash your feet, you go out and wash somebody else's feet. Sure, that's the medium of it. But what he's saying is, I am teaching you. I am being one who is bringing cleanliness to you. I'm bringing a movement out of chaos into order. Again, dirtiness is some form of chaos and cleanliness some form of order. He's saying, I am giving you transformation right now to a cleaner state, to a healthier state. And by me doing this to you, you must go out and do it to someone else. Again, we see that individual calling, that individual responsibility that is put there. Jesus doesn't come in and say, well, I'm going to, to wash one, one of you, and then the whole group is clean and goes out and does something. And, you know, if, if most of the group sits idle and, and, or if it, it turns into a mob and goes out and does something, that's fine. No, no, that's all ridiculous. Each and every one of them had personal responsibility. They got personal transformation, and they got that personal cleansing that happened there. So it's important for us to understand that disciples have a personal responsibility placed on them because that's really what this text is saying. It's saying that chain started with Jesus when he is doing the cleansing and the transformation, and now we have that responsibility to go out and do cleansing and transformation on our, on our others. We, we have a role in life to go out and teach others. Like an apprentice training to become an electrician, there is the reality that one day they too will become an electrician. Yeah, and that's something which really makes this interesting because if people are disciples— that means that they actually are going to be teaching. There are a lot of people who have theologies that say, well, oh, Christ calls us to be Christ-like, but we'll never really get there. Well, that's logically inconsistent with even the language of discipleship because if we understand what a disciple is, it is something like an apprentice. If we go back to the ancient world, we go back to the language of all of this stuff, we, we study the language here, a disciple and an apprentice are essentially the same concept where you have somebody who is going to become something. Now, there would be no progress in the field of, of doing electrical work if an electrician said, well, oh, one day I strive to get there, but I'm never really going to get there. I'm just going to be an apprentice of, 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 the, of this field forever. No, there's a time where the electrician actually graduates, and they go out and they do work. They're, they're productive. They're out there doing things meaningfully in the, in the life of their, their field. So we can never separate the role of the disciple from the teacher by any stretch of the imagination, but we also can't separate the role of the disciple from the active work. It's not this thing where Christ said, I'm going to call you to be a disciple, but you're never going to go out and teach. You're never going to go out and do transformation. Because again, if we understand the role of the disciple, it's not just to go out and, and teach from you know the pulpit or teach from a Sunday school room or anything of that, but it's to go out and bring transformation in the world around us. And that is so important for us to understand as we see this. It's, it's to do the, the cleansing things in life. Well, let's pick back up in verse 16 and go a little bit further and see what else we can find in this text. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have, I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Who, he who ate my bread has lifted my heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me resends the one who sent me. All right, and again, you can hear that reference. He knows that, that someone's going to betray him. You can hear that language of there. Uh, we're not so much talking about Judas right now, but there is a whole conversation to be had about that. We'll get to there at another point. You can hear that in there. But what you hear him saying is, you all have responsibility to go out and do this. I have chosen you. You have taken the medium of your free will. You've received the transformation. Now we go out and we do this. So if we can just take a few moments, peel away the medium of feet washing and see the primary expression of teaching, transformation. We can see Christ says, I teach you, you go out and teach others. That is the primary expression of this text, that there is a chain of command where people go out and they do orderly transformation, teaching one another and meaningful things happening. People ourselves, we must be servants. We must all be ministers. To, to separate out the role of the minister and the servant really does a little bit of a dishonesty to the, to the heritage and the, the language we have here in the text. It's worth pointing out that the word for minister is also the word for servant, if we're to look back at the ancient languages. Yeah, that is really important for us to, to understand this. And so if we get from this text, we see that the kingdom of God under Jesus is one that is spread from person to person. It's not this thing where there's a government agency that says everybody is required to come be a part of this. It's compulsory. You come be a part of it, and we're going to, with, we're going to force you to accept this ideology. Instead, it's something where he says, I'm offering this transformation. You, as individuals, using your free will, will choose whether you accept it or not. And that's a very important thing because the primary expression of transformation takes place on the medium of free will. People will ask, well, how can God be all-powerful if free will is involved? Well, the thing is, is free will is just a medium which things manifest. It's not a primary expression. And again, if we use these critical thinking tools, we can see all of this come together and develop some very clean, very, very consistent theology. So if we look at the kingdom of God and see how it spread, it spread from individual to individual. This is a huge contrast to how the ideology, which the, the pioneers movement in Russia was teaching, how it was spread. It wasn't spread by free will. It wasn't spread by individuals teaching one another. Instead, it was people who were ordered by the government to say, be a part of this program. We're going to teach you, and you're going to value the government. You're going to value this ideology of communism and socialism, which pretty much overlap, but a little bit different um, emphasis between the two. It says, you're going to love this. You're going to, you're going to crave this above even your own family structure. People always want to compare Christianity with other things, but what is so unique about Christianity is that it takes place on the medium of free will and on the medium of people teaching one another. It's not something where it's gone out and say, we're going to force people to be a part of this, but we have to teach people, we have to construct arguments, and that's how people are brought into the kingdom. And that's where we're going to leave this, this segment for now, and we will move right along tonight. Now let's talk about Viktor Frankl's concept of suffering. Okay, so this is something that we've been studying here at the, the local church here at Jolton Church of the Nazarene for a while, and I wanted to bring this to the online material, both with our, our Midweek Liberty program and the other stuff we're doing under the, the umbrella of Kingdom of the Law. So Viktor Frankl, he was a, a psychologist who, who has found himself in in Auschwitz and he had lost all of his work when he went there a lot of terrible things happened in his life and he spent three years in Auschwitz 
And after losing all of his life's work, he was there in Auschwitz, and he was, of course, doing what he does. He's a, he's a doctor. He's studying people's mind. He's studying human behaviors. He found that Auschwitz was really a microcosm for the for the whole human experience. And it was a place that was so raw. People, again, they were stripped of everything they had. They were stripped of their identities. It was just the most raw example of the human form that he, he could really imagine. And he makes this statement. He had a revelation when he was in Auschwitz about suffering and about the role of suffering and how suffering interacts with people. So let's listen to this quote real quick from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. To draw an analogy... A man's suffering is similar to the behavior of a gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious, and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. All right, so this is a really fascinating statement, especially to be said from a man in Auschwitz. But again, he's not making an argument by authority. He's not saying, I've been here, so I, I suddenly have more wisdom than anyone else. He's making an argument based off of merit. And it's always good to make our arguments based off merit. We don't want to just be people who say, well, this is who I am. This is my group identity. This is my card. Therefore, whatever I say goes. No. Viktor Frankl made a very wise observation. No matter the greatness of the suffering or the seemingly infinitesimal size of it, it will always be like a gas and consume a person's mind. You know, whether you stub your toe or whether you go home and find a, a terrible illness has come into either your life or that of someone close to you, suffering will consume your entire being if you let it. And one of the things why I wanted us to bring this up is because suffering is something which is just so inherent in life. People are always going to find suffering one way or another. And from Frankel's mindset, this really defines who we are as people because suffering is something which is so abs absolute. We're always going to find some sort of suffering, whether it just be our own mortality and looking to the, to the future in front of us. Even as Christians, looking at the, the moment where, where it seems that everything is going to, to make that transition from, from this world around us, we can always have something to find suffering in. So I want us to just think about Viktor Frankl's language of suffering, always consuming the volume of the container it's in. But also, this is not where he ended. He said that suffering is something that which we, we work to. We find meaning when we work through suffering. As we look to overcome the suffering in the world around us, that's where the true human virtue and the, hu, hu, the true human spirit comes to manifest. So many people in our world, we live in a, a culture here in America where people have really capitalized, for lack of a better word, but it's the truth of it, on victimhood. They have said that if you're a victim, that there's some inherent virtue in that. And while I think we should always be decent with people who have been victimized for something, the virtue is found in how one deals with that and how they overcome the terrible situations in the world around them. And that's something which is really true to Viktor Frankl's text and his, his, his field of logotherapy, which he went on to develop after getting his life back together, after living and surviving Auschwitz and rebuilding his, his professional career. We ask individuals, we must have purpose in life, and we have to work through the suffering around us. And we do this by, by truly understanding to, our, to the best of our capability. Again, I always think people are more complex than they are self-aware. But, but willingly embracing the suffering and working through it is such a great tool for enduring the suffering around us. When Frankel was there in Auschwitz, he really understood this. He understood that the way that one is going to get through this, they're going to, to not hide from it, not to have the physical or the physiological reaction that, that just causes one to shut down, but to, to, to say, I'm going to proactively embrace this and overcome it. 
And that's where strength is found and that's where virtue is found. So as we think about suffering, I want us to remember that it's something which will always consume the, the volume of the container it's in. And that's where we're going to leave this segment for now. And now time for the wrap-up. All right, so one of the things we have learned from tonight's study is that when we forsake our responsibility as individuals and we give that up to the government, bad things can happen. But we as individuals, we have responsibility to go out and teach others to to bring transformation in the world around us. And when we do this, because there's a lot of things in the world which are suffering, when we see the suffering, we say, we're going to take personal responsibility to go out and deal with the suffering. And even the difficult things in life, you know, we're going to take responsibility when it comes to, to raising kids, to being a positive influence on the youth. When we embrace these things, that's where we find value and where we find true human virtue. And if you learn anything from this program, I ask you to take the idea of primary expressions and mediums, apply that in your life. There's a great tool for critical thinking. And I hope you enjoyed our program tonight. And if you would like to support us, please, all you have to do is subscribe to our channel. You can find us on YouTube at Kingdom of the Logos, if you just do a search for, there on YouTube. Uh, we need to get more subscribers so we can access a few more tools, but you can also find us on Facebook. If you go to facebook.com slash Kingdom of the Logos, we're on a lot of different social media formats now. We're on, on SoundCloud, we're on CastBox, we're now on Tumblr, we're on a lot of different places. So I really hope you enjoyed this video, and with that, have a blessed evening.